Any prayers? You're welcome to come in. You took our flavored coffee. We want it back. Oh, so I put regular sorry. in that one. It's okay. Thank you. <laughs> Maybe it's the hangover from the donuts or something. <laughs> Any prayers? Oh. Yeah, two. Didn't I have a very dear friend of mine who is living in Belgium for three or four years. Let me know earlier this week. She's been in an emergency room twice. She's been having blackouts. They found her blood pressure down at like 80 over 63. She keeps getting sent home. So today she's seeing an American doctor over here. And hopefully they'll do something other than just tell her go salt and drink water. There must be that, yeah, the, the below blood pressure must be a sign of something. Yes. Isn't that nothing? Yes. And they haven't said anything? Well, it was like, uh, they thought at first it might be low blood sugar, although she's never had any trouble with that. So they told her the first day to eat crackers or have crackers nearby if she started feeling bad. The second day they told her with that blood pressure she should eat salt, drink water, and neither of those things seemed very. I've been saying half, half facetiously, I want you to hear that, half facetiously, um, the last place in the world you want to go to when you're sick is a hospital. Absolutely, no. <laughs> it's safer outside. <laughs> I mean, I'm saying that half a No, but she needs someone to find some yep. cause other than yep. Yeah, I would suggest you go to a cardiologist. Yeah, well. Because that's typically an indication that there's a Because they're with somewhere. the Boy Scouts, they have to go through all the military uh, channels. What's her name? Uh, Carol. Carol. Anybody else? In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, thank you again, Lord, for the gift of our life from you. Um, the gift of yourself in the Mass this morning, your words. Um, what a great source of strength to keep hearing you um, speak to us, um, often with warnings, often encouragement, admonishing, challenging. You offer your whole life and the part of you that was divine. Um, the idea that in giving ourselves to you that we would enter into a divine life, that it would become part of our own, seems so strange to us today, particularly in our age. Strengthen us to do that, to give ourselves to you knowing that we have divine help um, to make us more fully human and share with you in your divine life. Um, help us to take that seriously, to put ourselves away, um, particularly excesses, um, emotional, intellectual. Um, you, um, we're called to a mean, to be careful of extremes around us. Help us to be on guard. You, you, you tell us, uh, be as um, gentle as a dove and wise as serpents. Um, help us to make that living to be on guard, most especially with ourselves. Um, ask a special bl blessing, I'm sorry, Carol. on Carol, <coughs> most especially the doctors that she sees. Um, help her get the help that she needs. And meanwhile, um, help her to um, take seriously the efforts that she needs to make to protect herself and to the extent of what's going on. Ask a special blessing on Bob and Marcy, 
uh, Bob is facing serious problems and likelihood of surgery. <coughs> it will be a difficult time for both of them. They're not young and um, they've come to depend on each other a lot. Be with Marcy, help quiet her heart, um, help quiet Bob's. Um, ask for a greater breathing in of your spirit in Bob um, to keep courage um, while he faces um, these difficulties. For whatever silent prayers or intentions all of us here carry, um, hear them please and make them real. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay. Um, I want to just take a few minutes with a fellow and um, and try to pull together what we've been doing for the last couple of months on the modern world, the threshold of the modern world. And to, and to try to make emphatic that there's something peculiar about the modern world um, that we need to be on guard with. We, last week, I, I put out the question, didn't I? Um, was Othello damned or not? We talked about that, didn't we? Do we take time with it? Not at no, all. You oh, just put it out. No. wow. Okay, I get the two classes mixed up. So, okay. <clears throat> I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I want to take some time because it goes to an issue of tragedy. I think this group would be more cognizant of it because we've gone over it a number of times, but. In fact, let me do it now. Let me do the sound. <sighs> Tragedy. <clears throat> you remember, according to Aristotle, that the plot <clears throat> is an imitation of an action. It's so crucial to grasp that because um, I think the tendency for most of us is to say on the surface of things. Really, to be too literal-minded, to just get trapped in our senses. <clears throat> Every one of the episodes in a, in a play, in a novel, in Scarlet Letter, <clears throat> same thing's going to happen there. Jane Austen, every one of Jane Austen's novels shows us. Every one of the incidents, the events, imitates an action. They're an imitation of an action. Um, we, know, we know the invisible things through the things that are made. So if we watch things on the surface, we become aware that there's something underneath that those surface things are imitating. Okay? It's, you can call it a movement of spirit. <coughs> so if you trace out the plot from opening problem, complication, um, crisis, denouement, resolution, that's pretty typically a, a, a movement. For musical composition, same thing. For St. Thomas, every one of his arguments takes that form. Opening problem, complications, crisis, and answer, resolution. Um, <coughs> sorry. If you if you watch the movement, that that plot imitates a spiritual movement, an interior movement. It can be Achilles. It can be Hamlet. It can be Lear. Um, it can be Hester. Um, it can be Othello. 
it's impossible to read Othello without experiencing this awful change that this man undergoes, that he's drawn into this world in, in which he's over, overwhelmed. He's just unmatched. He, he's overmatched by what he faces in Iago. Um, it radically changes him. He enters into a spiritual world which he's not capable of dealing with, and um, it leads to um, the murder of Desdemona and killing himself. So, so according to Aristotle, the plot is an imitation of an action, an, an inner invisible spiritual movement from one point to another. The very best tragedies have these characteristics. Um, a peripatia, a turn, peripatia, turn, oh, a turn, an anagnorisis, a recognition, and a catharsis, a cleansing. Now those, those are absolutely crucial to understand. Um, a peripatia means whoever the, whoever the tragic figures are, let it be a, um, Oedipus Rex, doesn't matter, here, doesn't matter. Take ourselves. Um, the, the, the turn signifies that a way of life suddenly gets so disrupted that it turns everything around or on its head. And, and we all know that. We go along in life and then suddenly we get news of something and we feel like we've been dumped on our rear ends. Um, it, can, it can be lots of things. Um, um, Aunt Sally ran off with, you know, we discover the kids are on drugs or whatever, whatever it is. There's a turn and we realize that um, what we took as reality wasn't reality in fact. That there were things going on that we never saw. So a turn takes place. There's a change a person undergoes. What's involved in that turn is a recognition, an anagnosis, a, a seeing something. There's a, a, um, a depth of understanding enters into that person's life because he sees things weren't the way they appeared on the surface. They're really different. They're related. In that moment when that happens, the tragic emotions are purged. And you, know, you remember that the tragic emotions are pity and fear. And I've talked about these endlessly because I think we don't give them the importance we should. Um, both of them are paralyzing emotions. Parents um, often are motivated by, they're so taken in their pity for their children that they start enabling. You know, they just, they just keep passing it off. It's, it, it's hard to do... It, it's hard to take an action when it's, you know, it may involve, it'll take the family to a crisis, it may involve separations, we all know these things. So they're not just peculiar to tragedy, they're, they're, they're characteristic of our human lives, these moments. The point I want to underscore here is, for Aristotle, a tragedy meant a movement towards this point and a turn, a recognition and a purging of the tragic emotions pity and fear. So whoever's in that arrest, they're, they're so motivated by pity, let's say for their child, that they can't do what they should do for that child's own good. Or fear, they can be paralyzed by a fear of being afraid of what they're going to do. The whole point of this is this. Um, 
that action makes clear there's a rational ground to our human nature. So that um, in whatever way the action of the hero is taking him towards a catastrophe, a destruction, a death, a calamity, whatever it is, that turn takes that person back and a ground, a healthy ground is recovered. Bonum est diffusium, goodness is diffusive. Justice is restored. It's Boethius. There are no bad fortunes. So the tragic action always answers some wrong, some disorder, and leaves us out with um, the restoration of an order, a recovery of a balance. A rational ground is recovered. Um, the ground has been laid for a new order. The, the injustice, the evil is out of the way. Just as it is in Othello. We, you can name any, any work we've read, you'd see the same thing. We always get emptied out. There's a great cost. Somebody suffers, but we recover a ground because the ground was. Nature is rational. It's full of purpose. The logos is present. It's always working to recover. So whatever harm we work, it will it will finally turn out okay. The cost may be great, as it is in all tragedies, but there will be a recovery. Okay. So. <clears throat> James Joyce once said, he read a newspaper artic article, and the journalist described a young woman in a, in a, what's it called, a Hanson, a little carriage. A piece of glass shattered above her, um, and a shard struck her in the heart and killed her immediately. You know, it was one or two. And the, the poet, or the journalist's comment was, was a tragedy. And, and if you thought about that, you can, you can hear the pity that, poor, poor thing. I mean, who wouldn't be horrified at such a thing? But it's not a tragedy. And I'm making a distinction between what we popular, the popular way we use that word, or it's tragic, you know, and this, because we use the word all the time to, to describe something horrible. I just want everybody to clear, it's not a tragedy. It was an accident. It was a horrible accident. A tragedy implies a purpose, the cost of some disorder and a recovery. That's the tragic action. So whatever we say about Othello or Anthony and Cleopatra are gonna face a similar end. We have to remember that Shakespeare is showing that there is some evil, some disorder always at work. It will take a toll, there will be a cost but there's a recovery. I, I went through this several weeks ago, what, just to make it clear. If we cut any of these plates off two-thirds of the way through, it, let's say we cut Othello off right when Iago's working on Othello, what would the effect be on your emotions if we were left there? Or what were we dealing with when we, or, or, or um, merchant? If the, the play cut off just at that moment, when Portia enters and Shylock says, I have my bond. What if the play stopped there? And you knew or believed that Shylock was gonna have his way and Antonio was gonna die. Is everybody following? In one sense, it's an affirmation of Boethius. What Shakespeare's doing is showing that no matter, no matter how bad things are, there's some good at work helping to bring those things to a just end, to restore an order. And he's showing us the cost of disorders, evil in the world. In one sense, he's helping us to be more clear-sighted, more realistic about them, because they're there. Is everybody following? 
cut the plays off at some place and you'll see. In fact, that, what that would be an indication of, we'd be in the theater of the absurd. We'd be in a modern world thinking, there's no order. There's all this awful stuff and we can't do anything about it. Is everybody clear? So in one sense, it's, it, it's a great strength to our faith because it shows there's this rational ground at work and we're asked to, to we, 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 we relate to it aware that if we do, we can work with this order, with this God. Along those lines, I want to say one more thing. There are lots of critics who say that a tragedy um, um, is a comedy with um, the absence of a wise person. A tragedy is a comedy lacking a wise person. So, for example, they, here's Merchant. Merchant of Venice has got a Portia, and it all turns out all right. Lots of people will say, that's Venice without Portia. Is everybody following? Mm -hmm. I don't think that's so. I just want to make it because in the modern world, we have so valued comfort and security. We, be we believe if we just get everything right, we will be comfortable, secure. And Shakespeare would have found that ridiculous because Shakespeare, I think like most of us know, evil exists. It's going to work. Are we always capable of seeing it? Can we always anticipate it? As much as we might be on guard, are, are, are we always in a position of being above it, ready to answer it. Otherwise, why do we have these turns, these conversions? Because they all indicate there was something we didn't see, there's something we didn't know, there are things going on that we can't see. There's only one person who can see it all. It's God, I mean, he's the searcher of the hearts. He knows everybody. He can see things we can't. Um, do you think that one of the major blocks to seeing evil is our naivete, our for innocence, sure. for sure. Falsehood, <coughs> yeah. Yep. So, and it's very hard to get people past that. Yep. I, I, you know, we both because I was so grateful a few weeks ago, and you made your, you know, you described it exactly in those terms. I think I told you I've been writing a book in response to um, the movie Unplanned, and one of one of the it. it it alarmed me, not, not because of the pregnancy and the abortion, but because of this innocence that, to me, is so much a part of the American mind. The, um, this tendency to go around like they're innocent. That, that, well, I, here, we're going to come to this here because it's actually... But I just wanted to remind you of the tragic paradigm. Now, remember, great tragedies have a moment of recognition and a turn and a recovery, a restoration, a recovery of a balance. Um, it, it's, it's as if the evil has been cleared away and the ground is now prepared for a better order. So Shakespeare is not a romantic. Um, he's not innocent at all. Um, and it seems to me one of, one of the great contributions he's made for Western civilization on the verge of modernity is that he, um, he protects a tragic view of life. I think one of the harms of the modern world is that we've lost a track. We think everything should be comfortable, and um, if it's not the way we want, we divorce, we run away, we, you know, do whatever we do. But it's because we live in this innocence that thinks, you know, there must be something wrong with the world, and 
create a utopia or a socialism or something and everything will be answered. It's not, it's not going to happen. Um, the great value of this is that he reminds us that there's, there's something for us to be on guard. It was on guard again. Remember, it was one of the um, points I tried to underscore when we were going through Othello, when he set guard. <coughs> Remember when they arrived at Cyprus? When he arrived at Cyprus, he, the, the Turks had been defeated at sea. The storm blew them away. There's no threat from the enemy. None. He's doing exactly what a commander does. He sets his troop on guard. But they do it knowing enemy's gone. What's the great irony of that scene? I thought we went through this. The threat is from within. Yeah. Yeah. They're setting guard. Where are they looking? Out. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, it's shaking when you look at the, the depth of the irony there. Where, where it's what what's going on right under their noses? Inside, yeah. Iago's working on everybody. There's not a person there he's not working on. Every single person, eagles at work. Of that whole group, how many of those people are aware of an eagle evil right in their presence? None, absolutely none. And the ultimate effect of it, this extraordinary man, truly an extraordinary man, is going to kill the thing he loves most in the world. He's going to kill Desdemona. And then himself. So, here, just hold on to the tragic view. Here's my question: um, Is Othello? I, I, <laughs> the second commandment forbids us to do this. We're not supposed to take God's name in vain. We can't. That does not mean don't swear. It means don't speak for God. The ultimate end of a person is in His hands. You know, it's for God to decide whether somebody's damned or saved. But. But I'm going to put it that way just for the sake of a discussion, to, to put it at as high as pitch. I want to read these two lines just to refresh your memory. <clears throat> Remember, he's bending over Desdemona, and he goes, it is the cause, it is the cause, it's a painful. She's sleeping, he kisses her, and, and he, he says, it almost tempts me to break justice, that he loves her so much that he's, He's going to go against what in his mind is an action taken in the name of justice, that she's done this horrible wrong. And she wakes, um, he tells her to confess. He doesn't want to damn her. And she, she keeps resisting and, and he gives out little pieces of information, little hints on what's happened. And she's left confused. She, she, sees that something's gone on that she's not grasped and then he strangles her and Amelia comes in and we thought Desdemona is dead. Either she was and, uh, and came back to life or she wasn't complete. That's an important question. Um, Amelia comes in and to all appearances she's dead. <coughs> and then things begin to unfold. Um, Amelia questions Iago, I mean Othello, he mentions the handkerchief, and, and she suddenly, in shock, stops realizing that something happened with Iago and the hanky. And a couple of other things are said, and Othello goes, your husband. And there's that moment where she says it three times. She goes, my husband, and stops. You can see in the theater on a stage, all this stuff is going on, and suddenly this woman, it's almost like she's not there. She's, my husband. Yes, your husband. My husband. It's like a whole world. Imagine this in a marriage, where you've been married to this guy or this woman, you've been married, and then suddenly something happens and you realize, 
the whole thing's been a charade. It just, it's all been false and you didn't see it. And she says it a third time. <clears throat> and then it becomes clear Iago was behind it all. <clears throat> he kills as Amelia and then runs off. And when they run off to, cap to capture Iago, Othello's left by himself. Graziano is on guard, um, but this is Othello. This is the warrior. Twenty men wouldn't stop him. We know that. He, he's just this extraordinary warrior. Remember, he comes from a warrior culture. He's entered um, a liberal modern democracy that prizes itself on its intellect, its education, its sophistication. So an immigrant. He's coming from another culture, he's entered into it, and he's been undone by it. And he suddenly realizes all that he did with Desdemona has been wrong. Okay, and he says this. Behold, I have, so he's looking at Graciano. Behold, I have a weapon. A better never did itself sustain upon a soldier's thigh. He's this great warrior. I've seen the day that with this little arm and this good sword I have made my way through more impediments than twenty times your stop. Twenty men would not have stopped me. But, oh, vain boast. <laughs> this is extraordinary. Vain boast. Who can control his fate? Tis not so now. Be not afraid, though you do seem to see me weapon. Here is my journey's end. Here is my butt and very sea mark of my utmost sail. Gatiana has nothing to be afraid of. Othello's lost whoever he was. He's standing there in this sort of existential perplexity. He is not who he once was. Um, he, he's brought his life to an end by killing Desdemona. What's to live for? Um, do you go back dismayed to the lost fear? It's pointless. I'm not going to do anything with you. Man but a rush against Othello's breast, and he retires. Where should Othello go? <coughs> now how dost thou look now, O ill-starred wench, pale as thy smock? He's looking at Desdemona. When we shall meet at Compt, this look of thine will hurl my soul from heaven, and fiends will snatch at it. Cold, cold, my girl, even like thy chastity, O cursed, cursed slave, that's to himself, whip me, ye devils, from the possession of this heavenly sight. Blow me about in winds, roast me in sulfur, wash me in steep down gulfs of liquid fire. O Desdemona, dead Desdemona, dead, O, O. Um, <clears throat> he looks at the, Iago's brought back, they look beneath um, at his feet and he makes this ironic comment that he doesn't see hooves because he's, he sees that this is a devil figure now. And um, Lodovico says, take the two men off to jail and makes a special point of um, singling out Iago because he, People have seen now what's happened and how Iago's responsible for it, and they want to make a special torment for him, whatever the punishment will be. Doesn't say anything to, about Othello, but he says, take them off and we will find some special torment for this. And as they're about ready to go off, <coughs> Othello says, stop, wait. <coughs> so, there be any cunning cruelty that can torment him, Iago, how much and hold him long, it shall be his. You shall close prisoners rest till that nature of your fault be known to the Venetian state. Come, bring away. Now, Othello's going to use the word extenuate here. And just hold on to that while I read this because 
It's, it's so clear. Remember when the play opened and Brabantio wanted the Senate support against Othello because he ran away with his daughter? And the Senate didn't support him because they wanted Othello for this, um, for this maneuver they were going to make against the Turks. Because he, he, they see him as this great warrior, this general. He's, a, he, he's the um, military arm that supports the Venetian project. Take him out and it goes down. The Turks are on their way, this great Venetian capital, this, this, this paradigm, paragon of wealth and education, down. So remember that because there's a serious question whether he wonders if he's taken back to Venice, whether they'll see everything that happened in extenuation of him, that he was led to do this Viago and, and they'll kill Iago and may let him off because we've seen Venice. We saw it in Merchant of Venice with Othello, or I mean with Portia, um, how self-interested people are in that regime. So just hold that on your mind when, when, I, when we come to the word ex, um, extenuate here. So he says, wait, soft you, a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service and they know it. No more of that, I pray you, in your letters. When you shall these unlucky deeds relate, speak of me as I am. Nothing extenuate. He doesn't want off. Um, nothing extenuate, nor set down aught in malice. Don't get caught up with the wrong thing. Then must you speak of one that loved not wisely, but too well, of one not easily jealous. But being wrought perplexed in the extreme of one whose hand, like the base Judean, that's Judas, betrayed Christ, of one whose hand, like the base Judean, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe. That is, threw Christ away, but typically in the Middle Ages, the pearl was an image of the human soul, threw his own soul away. <coughs> he did that because of what he did with Christ. And the fellow is saying he did that because of what he did with Desdemona. Um, threw a pearl away richer than all his tribe, of one who subdued eyes, albeit unused to the melting mood, Drop tears as fast as the Arabian trees, their medicinal gum. He's not given to weeping, but he is here. Set you down this and say besides that in Aleppo once were a malignant and a turban Turk beat a Venetian and traduced the state. I took by the throat this turban Turk himself. I took by the throat the circumcised dog and smote him thus and kills himself. So he's killed Desdemona, and he's now killed himself. So the question I want to put to you is, is he damned? How do we look at Othello here at this, this moment? Well, I'm not one to say whether anybody's damned or not, but he's certainly not thinking clearly. And the fact that you would murder your wife out of justice, well, what do you think murder is? I mean, that's a bigger... And he had no proof. She kept saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I love you. And, and, and he just doesn't even listen to her. So I'd damn him in my book. <laughs> Anybody have an answer to that? Just for being an idiot. Because he's not the brave, great man that people think he is if he can murder his wife can anybody, based on the words yeah. of another man. Can anybody answer that? Just that specific thing? 
Well, he doesn't think he murdered her. He thinks he executed yeah. her. He executed what? He thinks he executed her. Well, that's murder. Well, it's it's a different it's a different frame. If you if you have a criminal and you put him to death, that's not murder. That's execution. If we stay in, in the play, this is a, oh wait. By the way, here's what I wanted to remind everybody here, because I think we're really on dark, obscure what really. Um, David committed murder, murder, and he committed adultery, both. And I want everybody to hold on to this. When David committed Hesiod, I can't remember the guy's, um, Bathsheba's husband. When he committed murder, he did it motivated by lust and premeditated. Okay, he set that up to cover himself. He killed a man and committed adultery. They're both mortal sins. God never stopped loving him, just one. The man on the cross was a criminal, and Christ said to him, this night I shall see you in, I shall see you in paradise. And remember the two men in the temple praying, one of them was boasting how good he was, what a righteous man he was, and the other man was saying how much of a sinner he was. Both of those men believed in the same God, both of them were in temple, both of them were praying, they believed in prayer, one of them was somewhat self-righteous and the other was a sinner. And Christ has, was explicit in so many of the things he did in saying he came for the sinners, <coughs> not for the self-righteous. When, <coughs> when Othello, I mean all of us can blame Othello for being stupid, I mean, but if you stay within the, out, if we get outside of our mindsets, whatever notions we carry into this, what's, what we can't forget this is a warrior. He's not a thinker at all. He's a warrior. He's a man of action. He's used to action. And one of the questions we have to ask is, how does God look at how does God look at a man like this? He's a man of action. This Iago has just wrought on him all this stuff, gave him what he thought was proof. We know that it wasn't. He doesn't. When he kills her, he thinks he's he thinks he's unlike um, um, David. Um, he's not acting in lust. He, he thinks he's acting in justice when he does this. We know that he's wrong, but that's what's in his mind. So, And something has to be said for this. When he kills himself, there are two things, killing um, Desdemona and then killing himself. When he kills himself, he says, and took this turban Turk. <coughs> One part of him has to be good enough to kill the other, or he wouldn't do it. He's killing. And remember Desdemona herself, and it goes to the, to me, it goes to this question, I mean, it goes to what you were saying, Tom, and I, certainly one of the major concerns that I have about the whole play in this Venetian world is, um, when Amelia asks um, Desdemona who did this, and she recovers for a moment, whether she came, was a, whether that was a threshold moment, you know, I don't know, but she said, nobody, I myself, commend me to my kind Lord. So Shakespeare's doing everything he can. <laughs> I don't think he consciously does this. I think, I think he's capable of rendering depths that are way beyond the surface way that we usually deal with things. But it's because he does that that we're allowed to go into that kind of complexity in a way that we're not accustomed to. So is he damned or not? 
Sue, I thought you had something. Were you going to? This is a, a very landmine-strewn area for a Protestant because I don't look at mortal sin mm -hmm. in quite the same way mm -hmm. yeah. you have learned. By the way, I think it's a landmine area for all of us. Who, okay. I hope well, that's clear. I mean, but. So I, I don't think he is. I think he was naive and manipulated. And I think we are all all susceptible to levels of that, where we think we see reality, but we don't. Yeah. And we <clears throat> accept evidence that appears rational at some level to us, yeah. but it isn't. Yeah. And so he solves that problem by having enough love to kill himself, which is understand another problem for the Catholics and so no, in a different way. No, they're, they're over that one now. Are they over that one? No, see, I'm, I'm going to say, because I'm going to say, what you just said to me goes to the to the best of everything that's Protestant and Catholic. I, I mean, no Catholic should have trouble with what you're saying if he's living okay. his faith. Well, all right, so I, no. anyway, I'm on shaky ground just because of my background, but, but I didn't, I mean, you just want to shake him and say, listen, <laughs> you know, pay attention that you have such flimsy evidence. But I think we all, hopefully not make that level of yeah. error because of it, but I think we all yep. judge things in ways that we think are based on evidence. Yep. If yep. we're rational, and sometimes we're wrong. Yeah. And he at least showed enough love for her and horror at what he had done to her to take yeah. her life. And it, I mean, go back to the tragic paradigm. He didn't do is, that. <laughs> is, is, can, can we look at his words about with me devils? Is it, I mean, is it possible to look at that and not see that he's had a recognition? He isn't who he was 20 minutes earlier. He sees he's done this horrible wrong. He, he doesn't want to be let off on it. I mean, that's how much it means to him. He sees the depth of it. So he says, whip me. Remember when we did Dante, the, um, the one thing that characterized all the souls in heaven is the loss of the intellect. Characterized all the souls in hell. In hell. Or sorry, sorry, so what I, sorry, in hell. The loss of the intellect. There's, there's, there's nobody, there's, there, there's nobody in hell who sees his clear well, and those who have some clarity on it do it in a spirit of defiance. They thumb their nose at God's, which means they don't. So the last, so, and what distinguishes that group from those going to purgatory is a recognition. They see their sins, they want to be punished. They're going on to justice with a mercy. But, but they accept justice. So Catholic and Protestant should be together on that. You know, that, um, that, that, um, that those who want to just justice were left in a world uh, vindictive, self-justifying, you know, um, um, what's her name? Um, Francesca blames God. Remember, we're watching people um, use their intellects to blame or judge without seeing how much of a sinner they are. <coughs> the one that go, do, do go on, carry their sins with them, it helps color their whole life. Stop and think about it. I mean, it's, you're going to see this in spades in, Char in Scarlet Letter. Because one, one of the things you're going to see is, is the people on one side see themselves as good. And it's because they do that that they condemn the others, that you know, Hester's going to get the brunt of this. What you see in that is it's, it's, only, it's only by carrying your sin, some awareness of yourself as a sinner, 
I mean, Tom's words to get past this innocent posturing that we, you know, that we do, that we can really relate to people as we should. So here in this play, in this scene, he he has a moment of recognition, and then a minute afterwards, he. But Fred, go ahead. But to me, Tom, there's there's there's, there's an element missing. Whether you're, and sorry, there's a what? There's there's something missing. Because yeah. you know, I'm I've, I've been both a Baptist and a Catholic. So I feel like you I, have been. Does that mean you're not a Catholic anymore? I, I'm still I'm still some of both, quite frankly. Uh, to to me, the 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 thing that's missing is there's no question he has remorse, extraordinary remorse. Mm -hmm. But the difference between him and David, the correlation you made was David asked God for forgiveness. Now I'm not a master of Shakespearean English. I heard a lot of remorse. I never I never heard anything say God forgive me. And he had converted. Yeah. So I think he's still damned unless I missed the yeah. language in there somewhere. Yeah. No. Talk ahead, Don. Boils down to awareness. I mean, when you're not aware, you don't know you're doing wrong. Right? Uh, I think that uh, he's aware of some things, but he's also unaware of a lot of other things that he's been deluded by. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I think it uh, it comes down to awareness. When you have awareness, you don't normally uh, commit sin, so to speak. Yeah. I think I've heard sin being uh, something that uh, people do when they're unaware. Innocent, mm -hmm. Tom's words. Just one last thing, and I I, I don't want to press this, but I. Um, well, I ask Ed. Go ahead. Because I think he becomes judge during executioner for himself. Here. I mean, uh, yeah. Othello. Yeah. Right. Othello. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he judges himself. Right. And it's like, uh, you know, he's taking, in one way, he's taking responsibility. And now he has to punish himself. Yeah. Two, two, two brief thoughts, and then I want to go on, because we could spend an hour and still not come out with a certain, but one is, um, it seems to me he has, he, wait, two things that I just, I, I hope we'll add to the obscurity of this. One is, um, where's my mind? I can't. Um, he's newly Christian. R remember, he, he comes from a warrior code. Do this, do this. I'll, you know, it's a war, it's a fight. He's only been recently Christianized. So uh, Shakespeare knows what he's doing. God, he just. He's a, he's a threshold figure. He's only recently come into the faith. How much, if, if a man lived his life in, in terms of justice, in a, in a warrior code fighting, and you enter the Christian faith, I, because clearly something of that is present in the love that he declares for Desdemona. Because <coughs> I don't know of another man in all of Shakespeare whose expressions of love go deeper than his. They're, they're extraordinary. So he's entered a world of love, but he's a man of justice. It's the, his, that's the code he's lived by. He's only recently come into the faith, whatever that means, and it, it seems to me that faith in Venice is a, is a dying thing anyway. People are not living their faith in this world. They, they're nominally Christian, nominally Catholic. That's one. Um, and I've forgotten the other one. That, that it's, what did you just, the awareness. Yeah, judge, or his, he was talking about awareness. Yeah, or? just... Um, he, he know. He, I think he's aware that if he goes he was back, he judge and jury. 
what he said. Yeah, th- th- there will be some extenuation. He cannot let that happen. So he, he takes on the role that he's, he is taking responsibility. I don't see any mercy either, you know, but, it, but it, in my mind, the question I have is, should I even expect it given these circumstances? How would, how would God look at this? When this man meets Christ, Christ knows him better than we do. Is this a, a, a soul that's vindictive and wanting to, I mean, he asked uh, Desdemona to confess. He didn't want to damn her in his own mind, according to his own code. So it, you have to be careful if you've been a Catholic all your life and you've been, or a Christian and you're dealing with somebody who's been a Moor. And you know that at the heart of Islam and Judaism is this law. I mean, it's, a, it's not mercy. It's Anyway, those are, those are things to keep in mind. And the other thing, don't forget, and I just, this, is so, this is so interesting to me. Either Desdemona was never killed or she died and had a threshold experience and comes back. I... The play doesn't allow an answer, but I want to throw out something. If it was a threshold moment, Lear has a moment exactly like this, when Lear goes, look there, look there, and everybody thinks he's nuts when he, there's a question of whether he doesn't see the, his daughter on the next life. If you have those threshold moments, we've got, I guess, psychological reports, I'm not good on this, but if she had a threshold moment, how much did she put together or was put together in that moment? Because all these things are, are occurring in the couple of moments when Othello's about to kill her. And she's putting this together. How much does she recognize she was implicated in it because of her innocence? Because there's nobody in this play who is not culpable for that death by their innocence. They're all implicated. There's nobody in that play not implicated. Othello works on it. I mean, Iago works on everybody. She said, nobody, I myself. Is that an indication that she, find, you know, comes out of her innocence that she bears some responsibility and she takes it? Nobody, I myself. Commend me to my kind Lord. Reminds me of Helena, that there's this, you know, extraordinary love so there are all these complications, these depths, and the, the, the thing I want to stress right now is not to arrive at a certain answer, but to just remind everybody, we've lost a tragic view of things in the modern world for lots of reasons. And one of the values of a play like this and most of Shakespeare's tragedies is that it, it reminds us that there's so much more going on than we see or that lends itself to a black-white judgment. There's a lot going on. How would God judge this man or, or Othello, or, I mean, uh, Desdemona? Or... I, I don't have very many questions about how he judge Iago myself, but because <laughs> that, I, I hope I've been clear. Iago says, I am not that I am. In the play, there's nothing human in that man at all. So I have no trouble. <laughs> I have no trouble with him. Remember, I am not, I am not who I am or I am not that I am. God is I am that am. Iago is the antithesis of God. His whole point in he keeps changing his motives. He will find a reason. He's an image of us in the sense that we almost never lack reasons for justifying what we do. That something evil and lawless. We will always make excuses. We will tend to justify. Iago is a destructive principle. He wants to destroy people. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. He says it's envy in the beginning. Two scenes later, it's jealousy. 
Three scenes later, it would have been something else. He shows the impulse in human beings to use their reason to justify what they do. His aim is to destroy. What's the ultimate effect of that? The destruction of a love. It is, he is the exact antithesis of God. God. God is good. He works for good. He wants life. Christ came to restore it. Um, Iago is the antithesis of that. Um, as Desdemona and their lovers, they have this extraordinary love between them. Iago works on he He's an image of the way in which a distorted reason can go to work on love and what it does to it. And I mean that generally. All of us in our marriages and our family use reason in awful ways, often, black-white ways, justifying, excusing, coming up with reasons, always. What Shakespeare, and this is on the verge of the modern world, it, it is a world overly given to reason, and reason in a way that's going to become destructive. That's where I'm going to go in a minute. So, I, I have a question that takes us back to the, the whole peripatia. I don't know if I can pronounce the middle one. Anagnorisis. 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 Got it. I understand the first two, and I think I know where they appear, but without his suicide, is there catharsis? I mean, what is the catharsis in the tragedy? In this tragedy? And if that's too much, then... No, no, I'm glad he realizes he screwed up. Well, isn't, isn't that, that the, the seeing the middle one and Related to pity and fear, I think, is Sue's question. Say that again. The, the tragic emotions that are purged, yeah. catharsis has no meaning unless it means those passions that are tragic in nature, pity and fear, they, they tend to paralyze us, they hold us pitying too much, and fear being too frightened to act, arrest us, blind us, that in a tragedy those emotions are purged, cleansed, so that when we come out of it um, we're, we're, not, we're not held by those emotions as much as we were during this thing. Well, let, I mean, let me, let, let's just say, let's just say that um, how, can, I'll leave, can I put it out to you? Can you find fear at work in this play in a way that's not healthy? Can you find pity at work in this play in a way that's not healthy? Not a lot of pity. Where? Well, he was more justice and mercy. He didn't have pity for killing. You said no pity. I thought you were saying... Mm -hmm. You just said not a lot of pity. Sorry? Not a lot of pity. Not a lot of pity. I thought, Robert, that the... Purging the catharsis was purging the pity and fear of the audience. Audience, so I think it's both. It's our yeah. response to the play. That I think it's both. Is it possible to look at Othello and separate his motives from fear? Um, he's a warrior. He's not given to fear, but the idea that Desdemona. We didn't read the lines, but he gets so distraught. The idea that. Once that idea is planted in his head, he is terrified at what he, the prospect of being humiliated, like a camp, you know, warrior. What would if this got out, and what she would do to him, and or his reputation and his honor? And it seems to me like you go through all of that as he's going through it, 
contemplating him killing Desdemona. Yeah. I mean, he, there's all kinds of emotions that go on during that. And on one sense, he feels like he's doing it for justice. In the other sense, he still loves her deeply and can't see himself doing it. So to me, that that just felt like, the, if I'm the audience watching the play, that felt like the cathartic moment to me. The, car, the cathartic moment when? When, when the, the thought process that he's going through is he's contemplating his killing of Desdemona. Yeah. And he, you see, you see fear, you see pity for her. It just seems like it's, it's kind of all there. And if you're, whether you're looking at it from your, the, the play's perspective, or as Suzanne says, from the audience's right. perspective, yep. I mean, I, to me, that's gotta be the most emotional moment in the entire play. Yeah, I, I would put it for myself later because those emotions, because it's hard not to feel pity for me anyway, for both of them when Othello's over her. We, 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 we the audience know in a way that he doesn't, that what he's about to do, it's hard not to feel pity for both of them um, because he loves her, she loves him. So for me, the catharsis will come in the tragic action when he kills her and then everything unfolds. It's, it's, it's released. I mean, you can't, you're, you're, you're freed from them now. The wrong has been done. And here's the interesting thing. I mean, it, it, I think it, it comes close. To, I'm not sure about this, Tom. You correct me. On, I think it comes close to Freud and um, Jung because the, if I, this is going to be a terrible reduction now. Pardon me on this, but I believe Freud's Gnostic. That's why I don't like him. I mean, he's in his head. But he believed that there's these moments when you can get past the repression, you know, through these techniques, and you can have this moment of enlightenment, and you see, and facing these things that you've repressed gives you a measure of freedom. You're, you're not as so susceptible to their influence. So in that sense, when Othello, um, it isn't just when he kills her, but it's when he sees, and we see with him, that now the truth is out, that pity and fear washes off. That, that from that moment on, we're, we're, we're left with the cost of evil. I mean, that's why I said a while ago that to lose a tragic view of things is a great loss to us as a people. That, um, that we stand with them, we've seen more, now it's answered. So pity and fear no longer have the hold over us or them that it did before. Our, our reason is deepened. We have less to be afraid of. We've seen what the evil was. We can recognize it. We've gotten, it, it ceases to have that kind of hold on it. We see it. We're more capable of loving because we, we will, presumably, we'll be more careful about judgments You know, because we've experienced it. So he, he's helped us to become better. Less naive, less self-justifying, less condemning. Those are, we've, we've gone through this experience and come through it. So I think the, the cleansing comes in in that respect. It, it, it freezes. We're restored. We're back to a reasonable ground, but our mind and hearts are deepened. We go forward with deeper, with a greater depth of vision and a greater capacity for empathy to feel another before we make a judgment. Well, I think everybody would feel for him, for sure. And when he's at that state, that you know, we're all potentially there with him. Yeah. And and yeah. But I think there's also the element of uh, shame in there because he 
he he'd been had by somebody, he knows it, that he saw himself as a great warrior and he and he had honor in that. Yeah. And this guy manipulated him so he could come up with the sale self hatred yeah. at that yeah. point. Yeah. And then all bets are off. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And once people get in uh, inundated by shame, then it's like uh, it's like the alcoholic who finally says, I'm an alcoholic, he says, you know, and they hate themselves. Uh, and it's like that at that point, they're close to dying. Yeah. They can't handle that. that the guilt, hate, too. The guilt. The guilt, yeah. The guilt yeah. and the shame. Yeah. Hard thing, it seems to me, and I think all our churches are the same. I mean, the guilt is there. I mean, all of us should feel guilty for the dumb things that we do. The question is whether, I, oh, this was it. There's the other question. Let me, whether whether our faith is greater than our guilt. You know, the, well here, by the way, I wanted to, to wait one second, Lynn. Um, the other comparison that I want to make, what's the, is there a difference between Judas and what he does with his life in Othello? <coughs> oh, that's a great one. Well. Hmm? Well, there's a difference. What's the difference? Judas betrayed Christ, Jesus Christ. No, what I'm talking about is the motive in the in the, the motive, motive for suicide. The well, that was his motive. He betrayed. No, his motive for killing himself. I think it's very similar. That was Judas's motive. It's not Othello. He'd had nothing. There wasn't any Christian motive there that he betrayed. Although he calls no, calls for yeah. you know the pearl of great price. So. Yeah. There's a difference. I would say in, well in. I would say Judas kills himself out of despair. Does Othello kill himself out of despair or justice? Well, he was despairing. He did the wrong thing. He was in, had no backbone. He may, anyway. Where was the lack of backbone? Not standing up to Iago, who said your wife, you know, was unfaithful. Well, that wasn't lack of backbone. That was he, that was. He was gullible. He just took his word yeah. without saying no. But that's my wife different. Wouldn't do being that. gullible. My wife wouldn't do that. Being gullible is not a lack of backbone. Um, Suzanne, say what you did earlier, Doc. We can go back to the difference here is what backbone and gullible. Like the difference between backbone and gullible. Well, you were saying what he did earlier was out of justice, not. Oh, what he what when he killed when he killed Desdemona. He didn't see it as murder. He saw it as an execution. He, was, he even says, "You make of this a murder." When I, he, those are his exact words, because he once again he thinks she's lying. I mean, everything everything that's been showed to him has convinced him that he cannot trust her. No matter what we say against him, if we stay within the play itself and what the play is asking, there's no way to come out of it with that reading. His great fault is innocence, naivete, or you know. Um, when he says at the end, "You make of me a murderer," when what I, mean, I mean, all it does is make him anger because everything he's, everything that's led him to that point convinces him that he cannot trust her. She's a liar. She's, he's mistaken in it all. Nobody doubts that. It's just those are not his motives. Here's a scene we just happened to get a clip last night of okay. that scene between uh, Othello and and Desdemona, mm. and she she finally. She's asking for evidence, mm -hmm. and he tell you, brings up the hanky. Mm -hmm. and then this terrible look on her face that he was basing this on this lie. And then it's like, how awful that moment was. Yeah. 
mean, so yeah. all, I mean, the sea done well. Mm. All that, it's everything fine. in that scene. Oh, everything. Fine. You could pick out any 30 second, <laughs> 60 second clip, and it's. It was like, oh my God. Yes. I think the difference between Judas and Othello is that Judas didn't think there was forgiveness for him. His sin was so his right. sin was so monumental, monumental that there there that even God couldn't forgive him. Um, I think with Othello, he didn't even think about God whether or not God could forgive him. He didn't want to be forgiven. He wanted to be. He wanted justice. He wanted justice. Yeah. He wanted to be yeah. punished. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Nicely said. Um, yeah, and the interesting thing, if you set, you, we could go on and on. I'm thirty seven word. Um, Peter betrayed Christ. What? Peter, Peter betrayed Christ. Yeah. He's the head of the church. Yeah. I mean, just we have to, you know, we just have to be have to hold ourselves to what's in front of us. Peter betrayed Christ. Judas betrayed Christ. They're fundamental. Um, David betrayed himself. I mean, you know, Othello did this awful thing, but we just have to stay with real differences. And It's kind of the humility of, of it all, isn't it? That, you know, we, we can't hold ourselves to be better than anyone else because we're all terrible sinners in the end. I think I mean, that's part of what's. I mean, in our society today, there's so much that's going on that we we see one side holding themselves higher than the other side, regardless of which side they're on. And there's just no compassion, no mercy, no no thought of the possibility that somebody else might be right and you're wrong. Right. No right. Awareness. Huh? No awareness. It really is. I, I, yes, I, I, I said that earlier, and it's not the same way, but I really, I, I think the same, my response is the same thing when I watch it. And that's why I mentioned Scarlet Letter and this black-white tendency in the American soul, that um, the, the situation you describe, that one side is right and the other wrong, has all, I mean, there's, there is a right side. I mean, the, the test for all of us is to be on the right side with the right spirit. Both. If you have one without the other, something's wrong. What's wrong in the discussion today is, because um, I believe there's a right and wrong side, or one that's more right, but for whichever side not to carry within themselves some sense of their own wrongs keeps them from talking moderately. If Once it's black and white like that, it's easier to get angry, condemn, violent, name-call. If anybody carried some sense that they had some wrongs with them, they'd moderate their talk. They, they'd be less judgmental. They, they still wouldn't... They, it seems to me they should have the convictions to go to, to conclusions, but the judgmental attitude, the convicting and the black-white is, is a sign of... you know. The, to me, it's like going back to those early theocracies, the, the saved and the damned. And, um, yeah, we never learn. I mean, you can see you can see what what's going on. You know, I, you know, I I haven't read it yet recently, but I mean, I read this Scarlet Letter, you know, in, in school, and I remember well enough to know that I mean, you see it in spades exactly what's going on today. 
yes. a self-righteous yep. group that believes that <laughs> yes. everything we believe in is right, and if you're not with us, you're against yeah. us, and you're wrong. Yeah. And I mean, you see that going on in the world today, yeah. just as it did, you know, you know, back in the day. Yep. It's just, um, yeah. I don't know, it, didn't, it just doesn't seem like we could ever really learn from our historical experiences. <laughs> We we're supposed to learn that from history. Well, I mean, we're talking <laughs> socialism, and I mean, if you look back, I mean, how many times have we tried? The apostles tried socialism, and it didn't work. And if they can't make it work, I mean, who can? You know? Well, you can. We just presumably, learn. presumably, just coming up over and over and over again. You presumably you can make it work in a in a monk's community, but on a in a political world, no. Not according to that point, you can. <laughs> what poem was? No, I, I forget what it was, but the one where the. the where we were the oh, friar, oh, yeah. you know the two yeah. the two friars and the oh you mean in Chaucer? Chaucer. No, 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 it was a poem. Oh, the one, you know, the oh, oh Browning, yeah, Browning. Yeah, yeah, you know, one, <laughs> and, and, and you got you know, two people and you know, had absolutely nothing. <laughs> to me, that's so they I'm, couldn't make it work. <laughs> no, I, well, I think I think in a in a priestly community can because. Um, that doesn't mean if you do that that somebody's not going to be evil because we carry evil within us. But anyway, here, let's, with whatever time we have left, let's... Um, Quickly, um, God, we're still back. I, I'm, I've got to get to the opening lines of this. So just skip the review. Threshold of modernity, quickly. Copernicus was crucial. Machiavelli, crucial. The Reformation, crucial. One of the most important things to I'd like to just throw out there for everybody to hold on to because we're going to leave modernity. I mean, we're going to get away from the threshold of it here. We're going to go back to before um, the Christian Middle Ages. But just those three things for a moment. One of the most important things to remember about the Copernican Revolution is this. Under Ptolemy, if you remember, the earth was at the center of the universe. It was the place of what... what the Middle Ages and the Renaissance people famously would have called the realm of mutability. Things change. And that means things come into existence, they flourish and they die. If you looked out, that, that's the sublunary from the moon down. From the moon out, in the heavenly spheres, everything was eternal. That's why all the planets had the names of gods. Jupiter, Venus, Mars, okay, Saturn. It was believed that man could grasp the eternal things. Plato believed that. If you, could, if you could grasp the things that were behind the planets, the gods. But the earth was a place of decay and death. So for Plato, the, the ancients, the, the knowledge of man was an incomplete knowledge at best. The poets sang of... of Sorrows, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Iliad are, are full of defeats everywhere. Um, when Copernicus corrected Ptolemy and demonstrated that the Earth took its place among the planets and that all the planets revolved around the sun, it meant that the, that the Earth, i.e. man, could be studied. And there were things about man that... Um, then became an object of science, because the object of science um, was necessities, laws, constants, those things which couldn't be other than they were. Okay? Science tries to find those constancies, those laws, 
what can't be other than it is. Um, that's why they're um, repeatable. That's why you can depend on them and, and you can create systems to work off of them. Technology depends on them, so do the sciences. So that meant that um, there were things in man that were determined like other things that couldn't be other than they are. Um, Darwin said that man's a product of these forces. So he has no free will, no free will. There are these evolutionary forces in effect. Um, man has no control over them. There's no free will. So man, now man's a product of these forces over which he has no control. Um, Freud will say that the, the basic determinisms in man are what he called the polymorphous perverse um, impulses and the uh, Oedipal impulse, the, the desire on the part of a man to sleep with his mother and kill his father. And so all these dark things begin to enter our way of looking at man. And I've asked you this question before, are the beginnings high or low in the modern world, ancient world? You've all seen it. The beginnings in the ancient world are high, the beginnings in the modern world are low. We have a very dark view of ourselves. Um, so for both um, Darwin and Freud, who are two of the dominant shapers of modern thinking, man has no free will. He's at the mercy of these powers. Um, Machiavelli said that um, he introduced science as a way of looking at politics and made this argument that if, um, if the ruler is going to take control of things, he can use whatever means necessary in order to get that control. Ends justify the means. We saw an echo of that in <coughs> All's Well That Ends Well, you know, just in the title itself. Shakespeare is very aware of that. Um, 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 so, and what's the other? Oh, the Reformation. That the, for the Reformation thinkers, um, the, the effects of the fall were complete. Man is depraved, not wounded, depraved. He has no free will, natural free will, it's gone. It's only with the grace of God that man can use his <coughs> rational power as well at all. So everywhere in the modern world, we are surrounded with these really dark things. Um, and behind them, the tendency to use our intellects um, at the expense of our hearts. It seems to me it's one of the dominant characteristics of our time. C.S. Lewis, in the book that I've mentioned to you before called Abolition of Man, said, I believe correctly, that one of the greatest aims, one of the greatest concerns we should have in the modern world is how to create ordinate sentiments. Ordinate sentiments. Aristotle said, um, teach a young person, a child, what to love and what to hate. And I think by our own examples, by loving the way we should, that love passes to a child. When reason comes, reason will be far more inflamed, far more accurate, far more powerful. Um, we live in an age which encourages people to use their reason at the expense of their hearts. They don't feel. Iago doesn't feel. He can't feel a thing. Um, so one of the problems we have in our modern world is how to bring our head and heart into alignment. We, um, the, 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 the title of that chapter in that book is called Men Without Chests. He could have called it Men Without Hearts. What he's saying is we've created a world in which the head is, um, is um, arbitrarily enlarged, too great. 
The problem is, how do we cultivate good sentiments? We can't, we can't do that without answering the disorders in our own hearts. And remember the whole platonic thing, mind your own business. There's no way we're going to be able to bring to other people what we should bring if we don't pay more attention to our own loves the way we love. And I think the church is the, I mean, it's the heart for all of us. It's, 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 um, we'll either get better there or we won't. The, um, the two questions that I left you with concerning Venice is this, and I just want to take a minute with them now, even though we're way past the time I wanted to give this. But You remember in Venice, Merchant of Venice, um, the men were really cavalier, too light. I've read that scene a couple of times now when they're in the courtroom scene, and we're just about ready, we're just about at that point where Portia's going to give the knife to Shylock and let him cut away, and Shylock is licking his lips, and, and the Bassanio says, no, 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 no. Um, I'd rather give my life, my wife, my, you know. And Portia says, your wife would not be glad if she were around to hear that. And then Bassan, um, Graziano pipes up and said, my life and my wife, I would be, and Nerissa says, it'd be a sad house tonight, you know. They don't know that their wives are there, but the men, the men do that, and then they get taken apart by the women, well, I mean, that's, the women take them on in a, in a very char wonderfully charitable way at the end. But I ask you guys this question, what makes the men so light in Venice? So that's one, in Merchant of Venice, what makes these men so light? It's a woman who comes in to this world to answer these disorders. And I, I would maintain, if the woman had been educated in Venice, she were a product of the Venetian world, she wouldn't be able to do it. Portia comes from outside. She knows philosophy. She has a very different heart. Her mind and heart are well-ordered. When she comes home, remember Lorenzo says, hark the music. I've suggested she's an image of poetry, the best, the best heart. Otherwise, she'd take her husband apart in a mean way. She doesn't. She's very charitable. What makes the men so light in, in Merchant's Venice? In Othello, all the men are innocent. They're, they're too susceptible to evil. And I suggested Shakespeare showing us in, or in Othello that there's something about the nature of Venice that encourages this evil because we don't see it in any other play like this at all. Iago works with everybody. What makes these men, let's take one at a time, merchant, so cavalier, so innocent? And in Othello, what makes them so susceptible, so innocent because I'm going to argue the disorders have been with us since the fall. But I'm, what I'm arguing is this is peculiar to Venice. It takes this form. This is us. It's important for us to see it. So where does the cavalier stuff come from? How do you explain that? And why this susceptibility to, innocence, to evil? Why this innocence? Let's take Merchant first. I think the law is important. They think the law will protect them. And it, they think that, what's wrong with that? It doesn't. Why? Mm -hmm. I think you're right. I'm just, if you could, can you flesh that out, Don? Just, well, there are ways around laws. Yeah. You know, uh, you can violate laws. Laws are a product. They do violate laws. Yeah. Like they think the laws will protect them, that they'll get justice, and everything will be remedied. Laws are, this is St. Thomas, laws are a product of reason. 
if laws are a product of reason, reason can undo those laws or get around it. Or like the men are caught up in the Boethius loop. What is what is that? If you if you kind of go back to the exchange between Boethius and Lady Philosophy, there's a long discourse on men's uh, weakness of chasing those things that are perishable, unsatiable, because they're the wrong things to be pursuing. So whether it's wealth um, or whatever it might be, you're always worried about losing it. You know, do I ever have enough? So you're never really ever satisfied. Yeah. And so you can't really, you, you get caught up in all of that. And you're, you're operating at a very superficial level yep. throughout your entire life. Yep. And I, and, and so you, you do disregard things that, that don't fit your directed pursuits. Yeah. And it, and it does come off as very cavalier. Yeah. And man-made laws can be flawed. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, right. Because men are flawed. They can be bad laws. Yeah. Right. And, and I hope everybody knows it because it, it's so much part of the Catholic tradition that it's absolutely lost in our time. This notion of a natural law theory that the or the root for natural law is divine law, the source, that gets cut off in a Protestant world. Um, and the Catholics have lost it. But all positive laws, laws on the book, should take their bearings from natural law. And natural law should take its bearings from divine law so that laws should have this link. But we, we make bad laws all the time. We've lost, we're in a social contract mode, not a natural law. So the, very often the laws we make are, we defend slavery, we defend abortion. Um, um, yeah, I think, I think what, did you have more, Fred? Did, I'm good. Okay. Um, a couple, just to try to put this, a couple of things together. It seems to me, when I, I laugh at this, it seems to me the men in Merchant of Venice are doing what men do. Look how noble I am. I'm willing to sacrifice my life and my wife's life. <laughs> they're doing what men do. I mean, they're, they, what, what they're doing is showing, look how brave I am. But they don't see how cavalier they are. They just don't. So they too easily give up, you know, their lives. It's, too, it's manly to be noble. They're doing just what men should do because men want to be noble. What they don't see is how foolish it is what they're doing. And when I think about that, it's impossible for me to think that, because I suggested that here, that in, and I think it's true for women in the modern world too, it's not less. When you enter the city, we've seen this from the beginning, when you enter the city, the city is a place of power, struggles, vanity, pride, envy. People in the city get caught up in it and they don't see it. They just don't see it. Porsche has to come from outside. Helena has no ambitions in the city. What she does is because she loves Bertram. Once you get caught up in the city, it tends to have more influence than you, you want. It's hard to get hold of it. Um, it seems to me when I think about that, it, there's no answer that I can think except make sure you have a good Belmont in your life somewhere, you know, that you, you read Aristotle and do what we're doing because traditions are multi-leveled. They, they give you a multi-level view of things. Portia brings that to Venice. Helena, from her father, and her, again, you know, from the learning that goes on there, she brings that to what she does in the court. 
that without a tradition, you're on the surface. You're, you're one of the prisoners at um, Elizabeth Seaton said it, it creates this transactional mode in men or women too. That you know you're on you're on it's a one-dimensional plane, and you don't get deeper. To go into those depths requires traditions, layers of seeing things that you can bring, so you you're not as quick to make superficial judgments. You know, black-white judgments. So a couple of things. One is it seems to me. Um, the, the men are too cavalier because they're being men, um, but they don't have these other things. And the other thing that I just want to throw out here, because it's, I, I don't have an answer for it except traditions, unless it's this. If people don't learn how to serve once they enter the city, too much of what they're going to do is for their own egos. One of the things that the people in Venice love is freedom. But that freedom makes them susceptible to everybody. Because everybody's going to tell them what they want to hear. That's exactly how Iago works in Othello. He tells Rodrigo what he wants to hear. He tells Cassio what he wants to hear. I mean, there's Ludovico. He, there's not a person that he deals with that he doesn't speak to him exactly what he wants to hear. If freedom's the highest goal, it, it encourages a selfishness. I want what I want. When somebody tells you what you want to hear, you're going to believe them. So I think what Shakespeare's doing in poetry is showing, <laughs> we need poetry, there has to be a way of entering into that world and still being detached. I have no answer for my answer, you know, why are the men so cavalier except to say, if you've not been taught how to serve, what else can you do? Your ego's going to be too much involved in anything you do. So. That's, sorry, that's my moralizing for the day. If you're going to be a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, I mean, yeah, if you can't learn to serve and put your life at risk, genuinely, I mean, it might cost, you, might cost you your job. We know that sometimes you have to stand up for the truth, and if you do, you're going to be gone. So Venice is a world that encourages this self-interest to look out for yourself, to get ahead. It also makes you terribly susceptible to others. Final point, if you take away God, if you take away God, and Venice is an image of the modern enlightenment regime based on reason, remember we saw it in the opening Law and Order, Brabantio says this is Venice, this is not a Grange, these things don't happen here. If you take away God and you make the basis of it reason, it means you're susceptible to reason. People can use reason on you in ways you don't see. If you take away God, it makes it easier for you to ignore evil. If God's not out of the, if God's not in the picture, neither is evil. You become terribly susceptible to disorders. Evil, they grow. Last thing, if you base a regime on reason, again I'm going back to Tom. Laws are a product of reason. They reflect our rational powers. They show how how attuned our reason is to. Um, natural law, divine law, God's law, whether we're in tune with that or not. But if you base a law on reason, it, there's a good because reason can be good, it should be. I don't, I don't think it is in our world today, but it should be, it's not. The problem with reason is that if it becomes sufficient to itself, that there is no God anymore or any need for faith, reason can also destroy itself. A person can give himself a reason for taking his own life. 
reason by itself can't protect itself. Reason can destroy itself. We know that reason, and I mean, madness, the, the way reason goes wrong can lead a person to take his own life. It can be a reason for killing another. The disordered reasons we carry, the condemning, the justifying, the self-wounding, I mean, all the, you know, that goes on in a person's life. So, in, in modern Venice, i.e. us, in modern Venice, Shakespeare is showing these cities that have emerged, these republics, um, that, that are in some ways blessings to us, <coughs> but separate them from the church because that's what happened, so that they're left alone. Then you watch all these things, totalitarian powers, reason, gone mad. Um, so Shakespeare is showing us some of the serious problems right there at the outset of modernity. And they're still with us, so let me, let me stop there. I'm going to just take just a few minutes with Anthony Cleopatra to get us going, but that's the threshold. Okay, that's the, the, in just a few of the plays. There's obviously more plays, but these three plays that we've read, I think, are really, are so good at Shakespeare's showing us what's, what's there at the beginning of our Remember, and, and the thing I didn't remind you, but in All's Well That Ends Well, there's that one passage where Lefeu says, Miracles don't take place anywhere. Everybody was shocked that Helena could have performed that thing. And she has that speech. Our remedies in ourselves do lie. One of the, one of the things you have to say about her is she believes in God. She has, a, she has enough faith in God to put her life at risk. She's, she does what most of the men want to do. She gives up her life. She owns everything that happens with She takes it on herself. She, her faith is so great that she puts her life at stake for it because she believes that, that when you do that, God will work with you. In my mind, she's, she's with the disciples and the apostles, with the healing that they did and the stuff that they did because of their faith. There's that wholeness in faith that she has that allows her to be an instrument for other things. And she does amazing things. Remember in that one speech, she says, we, it's, it's because we don't have enough faith that we pull back sometimes. We just don't risk ourselves as, as much as we should. Our faith isn't strong. So she's a remarkable, she and Portia are two extraordinary figures there in the beginnings of the modern world. Quick, major themes in Anthony and Cleopatra. The city and love are at odds once again. Have been in every play we've read. Step into the city, your ego, your vanity, crime. Past and future is a major thing. Rome can, as much as it wants to come into the present and create a universe, it says that, it can't escape the past. The wounds from the past keep inserting themselves. Um, um, the two worlds, Rome is masculine, very masculine. Um, it looks down on women. Why would it? If, if Rome, Cleopatra says, this is interesting, Cleopatra says, um, Caesar's a slave to fortune. She's, I mean, he's got Boethius here. Cleopatra comes from a woman and said, Caesar's a slave to fortune. The Roman ideal is you can use power and strength to overcome every obstacle. 
Why would woman be looked down upon? I mean, it's obvious. It's a corollary. Mm -hmm. hmm? They don't have any power or strength. Yeah, <laughs> physically, they don't. They can't. They're not as physically strong as men. Um, so women are looked down on. They don't have the physical strength that men have. Um, Egypt is very feminine. Um, it lives for the pleasures in the moment. So there's going to be this serious antithesis between two cities, two ways of life, one masculine, one feminine. Shakespeare, done it, he's done this in every play. Venice, Belmont, Venice, Cyprus, um, Paris, Russian, Italy. Um, and um, they think they can control the future with power. Egypt is visionary. It's in Egypt that we get soothsayers telling fortunes. And it's really, it's actually sad to me. I mean, if this is your first reading, you probably won't feel it. But the soothsayer gives um, fortunes to, to Cleopatra's three women. Lovely <coughs> women, and they're all going to come true. You won't, you won't quite see it because the words aren't very clear. But if you knew the ending and saw what they were saying, you'd realize he's saying the truth. That there's... A prophetic element in in Egypt uh, that we don't see in Rome. And one of the most important things that's where I want to go now. And I want to, um, the apophatic. You remember that apophatic knowledge um, is a kind of knowledge of things that are present, but we can't know them as present. The apophatic knowledge in the, in the church tradition is called the um, via negativia, the way of negation, the black night of the soul. I gave the example in the note I sent out um, that Westerners are nervous. I'm not kidding about this either. Westerners have to fill up space. They're nervous. They always have to be talking or you know filling up living rooms. Or Easterners are are much more comfortable with space, with emptiness. It's more other world. There's an otherworldly aspect, so they're comfortable. You know, in the West, if you get together in a party, sometimes I think people feel like they have to talk. You're uncomfortable with silence. <coughs> you're not saying anything. You're going to feel embarrassed. Or in the East, there's a people are more at home with space, with silence. If you look at the art, you'll see it in the art. Um, the ap the apophatic. It, when you read this play, be aware everywhere through the play. There are going to be all these allusions to gaps, absences, spaces. What is Shakespeare doing? Now here is one of the reasons I, the reason that I chose this. So if this is time, and this is modernity where we've been, and this is the Christian Middle Ages, this is what's called a um, theocentric world. This is anthropocentric, man-centered. This is a God-centered world. My question for, for us, we've been talking about where is Christ? Do we see him? Do we see him in Portia? Do we see him in Helena? I would even ask, I mean, some may be offended by this, um, I would even ask, is Christ present in Desdemona and Othello in their suffering at the end? I don't want to answer, I just want to raise the question, you know, that, that um, 
where people suffer and don't completely understand. They're not aware of what's going on, but they suffer for their loves. Even if they do stupid things, is Christ present? Just let me throw it out. We've been trying to find Christ, see if we can see him better in our world, because we, I, my, my whole effort is to try to get out of the church, an ecclesial world, into the real world. Right? Into the world that we live in most of our time, to see if we can't become aware of Christ immediately in our world, like the mother looking back when she was four and pricking her finger. Who sees Christ present in a four-year-old pricking her finger? Or even Portia in the you know, classroom with her mercy speech. Um, we're here, we're used to thinking in terms of a church world. The humanists take us into the world as we know it, and they keep showing us, like Boethius, there's some good going on, or they could never come to the end, even in a tragedy. I've argued all tragedies recover a balance. They restore something. We recover a place. We learn to see the cost of things. It deepens our eyes, our capacity to feel. So it's, it, it, this is the question I want to ask. This is a Christ-centered age. This is a post-Christian age. We're living in a world in which God has come into the world and he's refused, he's rejected. <coughs> People are more inclined to sympathize with Judaism and Islam than they are with Christianity in our world. <clears throat> so my question is, what was God doing before Christ came? I love that question, by the way. <laughs> Christ has always been present from the day on. <laughs> I wasn't going to answer that, but let me, <laughs> let, me leave, let me leave, I'd like to leave it as a question. Mm -hmm. What was God doing before Christ came into the world? And I want to say this really seriously. This really troubles me a lot. We know that Christ was the Son. And we know that the Father, Son, and Spirit were always eternally indwelling. Right? God's concept of himself is his Son. The love between them is the Spirit. There are three persons, one God. Three persons. Their nature is to indwell. So when Christ took on, or the Son took on human form, he became Christ, there's no way the Son can be seen as abrogating the Father's law. I hope that's clear. He's one, always was one with the Father. So to put the Old Testament and New Testament in opposition is to misconceive the Son. I came to show the Father. In me you see the Father. Man has not a place to lay. I mean, the Father's with him always. He reveals him. So everything we see him doing, even if the Jews got lots of things wrong, the Father gave his law. The first commandment, love your God with all your might. More than anything, that was the first commandment. That's from God to Moses. Love God. I think the second was love your neighbor. So to, to see Christ as doing anything that would undermine or oppose or negate the Father is to misconceive him. It's important somehow to see the, the links, intrinsic links between Old and New Testament. So my question, we're going back to a point in time just before Christianity. Shakespeare knew the world better than God. I don't know if he the world as well as he does, but he knew the whole Roman Empire. Coriolanus is his play on the beginning of the Roman Republic. Coriolanus. Julius Caesar is his play on that point at which the Republic is in danger because Caesar's going to claim imperial powers. 
People are going to treat him as a god. They kill him. That word takes place just before our play opens. This play, Anthony and Cleopatra, takes place just before Christ enters the world. Now my question is, why all these absences? Why all these gaps? Why all these privations? I'm going to give you an example in a minute. And you're going to find, over and over and over again, people withdrawing. Early on, um, um, one of the commander's servants is going to withdraw. Eno Barbus, who to me is one of the most remarkable lieutenants, warriors, seconds to a commander. He, lo he loves Anthony, absolutely loves him with everything in his life. He's going to withdraw. Caesar's going to ask his, when he hears, when he believes that Cleopatra's killed herself, she hasn't. She, um, she's using her wiles as a woman to get him. Um, he asks his soldier to kill him. The soldier's name is Eros, love. He refuses, kills himself. Cleopatra wants her maidservants um, to help her. They can't do it, take their own lives. So there's a strain, and, and by the way, so and the Roman ideal, if you're near cap, if you're near being captive, take your own life, like a samurai code. Suicide was not uncommon. So we're back in we're back in Anthony, or I mean sorry, we're back in, in Othello. We're watching people take their lives, committing suicide. How do we? How are we going to look at it then? Okay, um, so Shakespeare knew what the Romans didn't. If you go back to Roman historians, no Rome, no history, no historian will show you the divine working in people's lives. It's not empirical enough. Histories tend to be empirical, unless you go back to Herodotus and Thucydides. Even then, even then, they're pretty empirical. Historians won't show you this stuff. The divine. They're going to show you power struggles and large, you know, movements. Shakespeare is a poet. He's he's absolutely faithful to historical events as they played out. This world empire, Rome, its conquest of the world, and at that point it was a, it's about it's a, when the battle ends here. That battle in Actium that leads to the deaths of Antony and Cleopatra closed the gates of war. It was from that point forward for 200 years that Rome lived under what they called the Pax Romana, universal peace. So peace is on the border and Christ is about to enter the world. The Romans did not know that. Shakespeare knew it. So he saw something that they didn't. Was he aware of that? Did that come into the way that he plays out this? Is he showing God doing something that the Romans would not have seen? That's the question I want to leave you. Can you just take a look at the beginning for a minute as an example of the apophatic? You, you have to read this play. <laughs> you have to read this play. It's, it's extraordinary in what it does in the, this apophatic. This, um, here, take a look at the beginning. Um, remember I've said the beginnings always give the plays away. Philo says, nay, but this dotage of our general overflows the measure. Moderation, the measure, means a measured way of doing things. Those his goodly eyes that o'er the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars. He was a figure of Mars, this man. It's really clear from the whole play that Anthony was seen to be the greatest soldier in the world, even greater than Caesar. Everybody acknowledges it. Um, everybody. Anthony challenges Caesar to 
one-on-one -on -one combat in the plague, Caesar refuses because he's, he's just a cunning man. He knows if he goes, he'll lose. He chooses not to. Anthony knows whenever he's with Caesar, he weakens. Whatever that psychologically that means, he loses some of that power. Here it's saying, this is this great warrior. Those whose goodly eyes that o'er the files and musters of the war have glowed like plated Mars, now bend, now turn the office and devotion of their view upon a tawny front, a woman, a woman. His captain's heart within the scuffles of great fights hath burst the buckles of his breast, renigs all temper, and has become the bellows and the fan to cool a gypsy's lust. Not much good to say about a woman here. This great soldier has lost his manliness in, in, in his love for Cleopatra. Here's, so, look where they come. Take but good note, and you shall see in him the triple pillar of the world transformed into a strumpet's fool. Behold and see. So, opening lines. We've got this man who is no longer who he used to be. Absolutely divided. This great strength that he had before has compromised itself somehow with this woman. Okay. Here's where I wanted to go. So, at that moment, Antony and Cleopatra enter stage Okay, with these words. Cleopatra, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. I'll set a born how far to be loved, set a limit. Then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. <laughs> you know that those are lines referring, I think, to Revelation. So there's this distant allusion to Revelation Christianity. Um, what were the words that were spoken just before they entered stage, made their stage entrance? Cleopatra, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. There's beggary in the love that can be reckoned. I'll set a born how far to be beloved. Then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. What were the words? This is one of the most beautiful examples of the apophatic that I know of in all of Shakespeare, and he was a master at it. Say, sorry. Was it her line, if it be love? No, before that, before they entered. Yeah, that's her line. If yeah. it be love is her line. Yeah. But before, before she said. What was said before right. the lines that What was she right. responding to? What was just said between them that led Cleopatra to say, if it be love indeed, tell me how much. I love you. Right. Is everybody okay? She had to have just said, or he had to just say to her, he this, by the way, this is sort of a fellow figure. This is a warrior. And he just said to her, I love you. She said, so we don't hear that. Mm -mm. We hear, if it be love indeed, tell me so. Because remember, this is a world of machinations. She's already, she's had an affair with Caesar, or the Caesar's, uncle, Caesar produced a child. There are these machinations, world powers vying with each other. They know it. Rome's at war. It's, it's, in, it's in, embroiled in civil wars still. She's involved with it. Caesar has talked with her. Um, they're not happy with Anthony right now because his sister, his wife, his sister's been at war. So she's got to be careful. So she's saying, if it's love, tell me how much. He says, there's beggary. I can't tell you how much. To, to try to tell you how much is to show how 
poor I am. It's like any lover, you know, a man when he declares his love for wife, we all know those moments. There's no way I can express. And she says, I'll set a born, how far to be beloved, a limit. He says, then must thou needs find out new heaven, new earth. Because he's saying, there's no way to express the love I feel for you. He would need a new heaven, new earth. That's Christianity. Now here's my question. Why did Shakespeare do this stage entrance the way he did it? Why did he, why did he present them without our hearing those words? We don't, they're not present, they're absent. They're not there. Is everybody clear? They're not there. We don't hear them. What we hear is a response. Why? Is everybody clear? He could have started when they, he, he could have had them come in and Anthony say, I love you. He didn't. We don't hear those words. Why did he do that? If you know Shakespeare, there are no accidents. There are no accidents with Shakespeare. Why did he do this this way? Francis, why did he do this? I think you do. Because we just know it. We know it. That we know. But they didn't. I mean, this is like Othello again. We're in a she world. She didn't know where... his love. Yes, she did. Wait. What? What do you? When, when you? When you yes. say we know it, we? When by saying that you the mean readers. what? Hmm. I guess the readers are those in the audience. We know. That what do we know? That. Antony loves Cleopatra, even though the words are not here in the opening. Alexander Cleopatra. Does it, does it imply something previous, or that it, that it's like mind reading, or or if there's a just it's, creating it's, space uh, for something to occur? You know that before their minds start taking this thing apart or creating it, they have to find some place where they. No. Connect. Well, I isn't, isn't Anthony's married to Fulvia yeah. 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 at this point? Yeah. yeah. And oh, yeah. there's there's got to be a part of Cleopatra wondering, well, if you've got a wife somewhere, you know, <laughs> do you really really love? Yeah. Her? Mm -hmm. And I think this is her way, and she and, she, and I guess to me the, the mention of beggary meant something different. <laughs> she's she's actually trying to to get Antony to satisfy her fear, for lack of a better word, yeah. that maybe she's just another woman. Right, right. And I, I think that, that kind of shows up all through the play in different places because ultimately, well, yeah. we'll jump in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll, I'll, maybe I should. You go ahead. No, I'm well, I mean, ultimately, Ant Antony's- Don't give away the ending if that's where you're going. Oh, but no, it's just, okay. well, no, 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 I, no I, I give up. I'll save that for later. I don't want to screw anything. No, dude, you go ahead. Just I don't want you to give away the very ending because. Oh no, I'm not going to do that. But, but all I'm saying, I, I'll, I will just say this: that you see in, in places through the play where you're not really sure whether Cleopatra really is comfortable with the love 
of Antony in the sense that is it real? I'll, I'll put it more strongly. I think she knows, well, she's frightened that he won't, and she has, anyway, mm -hmm. but I think there's, go ahead, Don. Well, Fulvia was his third wife, so he's been yeah. around the block a few times. <laughs> 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 but not to a queen. You and Mark in the evening, these, these, modern, maybe, these maybe, modern debunkers. <laughs> maybe Shakespeare is trying to introduce that dynamic so that you pick it up over the course of the play, because it's relevant. But he hadn't married a queen before. He Go never ahead. married Cleopatra, <coughs> at least to our knowledge. Yeah. Then when he got lost one way, he went and got another way. Um, <laughs> they had three children. I had, I had a totally different, uh, hmm. a totally different thought about it. Maybe, maybe it's not totally different. But the words "I love you" can be pretty prosaic. I mean, they said a lot. Yeah. Uh, Shakespeare doesn't need to have them there. What he starts with is so much more showing the personalities, inner belief, workings, machinations are the words mm. that come to my mind of the people involved. You don't need to say the prosaic to start with, because you understand it. I mean, okay, so you said that. So then what? So whether she's manipulating him or truly insecure. Um, or both. Because or, you know, there's almost nothing that she does in the opening scene that isn't manipulative yeah. and insecure. But, well, so. Yeah. Anyway. Let me just ask this question and leave it. it, is, it is it all of these and, and also that um, real love as Christ came to show us is not yet in the world. Um, so, that, so that anytime anybody would say I love you, there, the likelihood there'd be some prosaic meaning. If Christ enters the world and you're one with him, and remember we talked about this with Dante, the women, women who have the intelligence of love, that that if you love the way you should, you'll see things differently from other people. That very often we see through disordered loves and it affects our minds, the judgments we make. But that when you love, you don't see the same way. So, um, serious question for me, whether he leaves those words out because it's his way of saying that love has not entered the world yet, the fullness of which they don't know. And it's a question, so just keep that in mind, these absences, this apophatic, that things not said, these privations, they're going to increase through the play. It, is it Shakespeare's way of using the apophatic to let us know that while Rome was doing all of this stuff for the reason they did, something was there and they didn't see it. So to me it's appropriate, it, all those lines, for this play to begin by... Cleopatra saying, tell me how much. He could have had Anthony on stage, he doesn't. We don't hear those words. It's the first absence, the first apophatic. My own sense is that it's his way of letting us know at the beginning that that love hasn't revealed itself to the world yet. And it's going to be a question whether these two lovers come close to that in all that happens. That, or to put it differently, is what they do at the end defined wholly by the state? because the state has determined everything up until this point? Or is there something more that's happened between these two lovers that transcends what goes on in the city, in the state? Let me just leave it as a question, okay? This is a really good play. I hope you all read it. <laughs>
I'm having a hard time understanding a lot of it because, uh, I mean, I've read lots of Shakespeare plays, but this is the first one I'm really struggling with, the words and the phrases that he's using. Wow. Yeah. Funny. Um, Maybe it's just me getting older, I don't know. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> 31 years.